Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're launching the second part of a two-part episode with Skylar Fernandez. Skylar is ranked as a Powerless 100 VC, is the founder and general partner of VU Venture Partners and the founder and CEO of Venture University. If you haven't yet, please go ahead and check out part one to learn more about Skylar and VU. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from minus cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. In Europe, we talk a lot about deep tech these days, and we say that Europe needs to stop trying to do what has been done in the US. That's exactly what we're saying. We should start focusing more on, also from a policy perspective, on driving the technology coming out of our universities into the market. It's almost like a drug addict, because like if you know something works, you keep doing it. That's why I guess why you keep doing heroin or coke. But like the idea is like if you know that copying business models work, it's a much easier solution. So weaning Europe or Asia off of copying business models that work, I don't think you're ever going to be able to do that. I think the question is how do you inspire founders to be more creative and more willing to create companies that have not been created before and not take the easy out. And the same thing is true actually from diversity. I think if you look at the increasing of diversity of the venture capital asset class, increasing the number of women doing venture underrepresented minorities, one of the, you know, for positive or negative, if you have more female VCs, you're going to have more things that that demographic is comfortable with. So you're definitely going to have more capital deployed to femtech. You're going to do things that are more fashion and CPG oriented because there is more of a connection to just your own existence day to day. You had a funny story on the femtech point uh, last time we spoke. Maybe you'll share that. By before we started yeah it's not necessarily bad but like seven out of ten times if it's a cpg fashion startup it was probably started by a woman and women tend to gravitate towards the things that they're more familiar with what i would encourage more women to do is to create companies that have nothing to do with them as a consumer men certainly do this in a much broader sense as men create female fashion companies and so when it comes to diversity it's like you know the, the fun controversy of diversity in general of like nobody's fighting for more women to be bricklayers but it's like if you want true diversity you're going to want to start having more diversity of what country 
countries are developing too. So it goes back to how do you inspire Europe to creating more things that are true to Europe and are unique and not taking the easy out. And both of those things do exist, but it definitely requires a mentality that is a higher risk mentality. And that's kind of where you go back to the culture of Asia and the culture of Europe typically is not as high risk tolerant. And so that's why you're not going to get them in high volume. You've been in the ecosystem for a long time. You've done a lot of global deals. What is your general experience with investing in Europe and investing with European VCs? And what would you maybe, now that you have some of the emerging managers and existing managers in Europe listening, what would you like to say to us? Yeah, so I think um, it's interesting. Europe seems to be way more embracing of impact investing for a longer period of time. So I think impact has always been a higher priority than it has been for the US. The US is certainly growing now more in its impact investing groups, but the ecosystem of venture, both in Europe and in Asia, has slowly gone downstream. And I think that's how it evolves with every ecosystem, to be honest. As you start having more successes in the ecosystem, people are willing to go earlier, you know, go from like more B funds to series A funds to seed funds to pre-seed funds. The funding food chain will kind of continue to improve as you have more successes in those ecosystems. And the great thing about that is that it happens in Europe is right now, if you're like a European fund, I think you're smarter to think about having a lot of reserve capital because you might be the only investor that's going to be funding this thing for the next few rounds. In Silicon Valley, there's a little bit more of a greater fool theory at play, which is there's enough funds to keep on funding this other than me. <laughs> And the same thing is actually true of like in the middle of the United States, like in Chicago, anywhere Midwest in the US, it's kind of like Europe, which is you better you know, hope that you have enough capital capital reserved because you can't guarantee that other VCs are going to back your Midwestern US deal. So it's a similar mind frame, I think, on reserve capital, but you will have a healthier and healthier funding food chain where both sides of the spectrum grow. You have earlier stage funds and you're going to have, you know, more of the mega billion dollar funds that are launching in Europe. And that's a healthy part of the ecosystem that there always is this future capital pool that founders can get access to. I think our experience in investing with European VCs overall has been extremely positive. I think oftentimes the European deals tend to be a lot more global right out of the gate. I think that's kind of an interesting fact. If I think of like, we're an investor in Finless Foods, which is lab growing fish. The fish industry is certainly an industry that's even bigger internationally than it is in the United States and where there's overfishing happening when it comes to a lot of European countries. And so the play there is you're already thinking about market opportunities that are significantly more global in nature right from the get-go of like solving the future of world hunger. And so I have really appreciated the fact that a lot of the deals that we're co-investing with other US deals are largely like their five-year projections are still we're just a US company. But I think a lot of the European companies, they're already thinking a lot more global. And that's partly tied to just population, the fact that you have to go after significantly larger market sizes than one particular European country. But that also makes it a higher risk and more complicated deal where it isn't something that can expand just in one country to be a success. But we looked at deals in London where like all they need to do is be successful in England 
to get to 50 to 100 million. It's just there's a lot fewer of those type of opportunities. The same thing is true like in Divindia. You know, the realization is that the $100 million revenue target in five years for a U.S. company is basically a $30 million company in five years in India because of the middle income being a lot smaller. So you have to take that into consideration on the scalability of companies, even though there's a much bigger population in India because of the economy, it's just not the same dynamic of what a five-year revenue target number can even be. I'm curious to hear you uh, speak about more from a value creation perspective and working directly with portfolio companies of the process of US-based companies tapping into the European market or even eventually the Asian market. Can you expand a bit on your learnings there? I'm trying to think of anything that would be really useful on that topic. <laughs> Part of it is like you need to know who your gatekeepers are of the relationships. You know, I think for the most part, a lot of European VCs are kind of unknown to US founders. And it's oftentimes by getting connected with either an accelerator or some type of ecosystem player that really allows this, you know, connecting the dots between the venture ecosystem in one region versus another. You know, we've built out our own network now in Europe. I think we have about a thousand relationships that we have outlined that we have in our database between accelerators, venture funds, strategics, and we've kind of mapped those across all the different countries across Europe. So we've started to kind of build our own network by market landscaping that. And certainly when there's portfolio companies of ours that are looking at expanding, we then will make the connections for That's one of the value props of our fund is that if we do invest in you, we have a pretty large database of relationships given the size of our investment team and our alumni that we can kind of more rapidly get you in front of the right people from capital or strategic partners. Even like the United Nations, we have a partnership that we're launching with them, which is all focused around making the right government introductions and the right strategic introductions for about 80% of our portfolio that are in alignment with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The main thing is you just really have to know who are going to be your gatekeepers and the one-to-many players that you need to get in touch with to make the relationships happen. Let me follow up then with a hyper-provocative question now, (laughs) (laughs) which is yesterday I was looking at some data about performance of emerging managers versus established managers and also data on returns in Europe versus the US in VC. Was it like from uh, Cambridge Associates or where where was it from? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cambridge Associates. So data as of, uh, I think it was Q3 or Q2 last year, something like that. I'm not sure right now. Got it, yep. The numbers are promising for emerging managers and for Europe. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's really funny. If you look at the Cambridge Associate data over the last like few decades on venture performance, Emerging managers have the ability to significantly outperform, but that's not the funds that Cambridge Associates recommends to their LPs, which is kind of funny because they have reports that say that emerging fund managers can outperform. The challenge with outperforming, though, is there's also a spectrum there of completely underperforming as well. So it's really a question of what's the risk tolerance you have, because if you're willing to be a riskier LP to get a potential for a higher return, then you should focus on getting into a really top rated emerging fund manager. But if you want to like not lose money, then put money into Sequoia. The challenge is going to be, 
do you have access to enough money to become an LP in Sequoia's fund? Because the check size that you might have as an LP, this Sequoia is not going to accept you as an LP. And so you have to then, not by choice, but by force, you're only going to have the smaller funds that you're even going to be able to get allocations to becoming an LP in. But the good news is you're going to have a higher spectrum of lower performing and outperforming potential versus with Sequoia, you're not going to lose money. It's hard to turn, you know, if Sequoia's fund is $10 billion that they just closed. Like, you know, if you're going to close that, like getting a 3X means you have to turn 10 billion into 30 billion in the venture asset class. So you could, you know, get your two to three X fund, but for you to get like a 10X fund, it's really hard for Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia to achieve that because they're not going after also the opportunities where that's the average return all said and done because they're going in at much, much later stages. So they're definitely not going to lose you the money, but it's hard to also get those higher returning funds. One of the few funds that did this is like Excel. One of our advisors for VU is a guy named Chris Duvos, who used to be the head of Gales Endowment and then Princeton's Endowment. And he's been the early anchor LP for a lot of emerging fund managers. And one of them is uh, first round capital. So he was the initial anchor LP for first round. His perspective is like, he looked at, at Excel for many vintages and he kept passing on being an LP. He's like, I don't understand why everyone thinks they're such a great fund, but if you actually get under the hood, their performance wasn't so great. But then because he kept passing on them, he didn't get into the fund that did Facebook. And that was like a 16X fund. You know, so, uh, you know, there are opportunities to still get that if you have truly remarkable opportunities like a Facebook, which don't happen all that often. But yeah, it's a funny situation where Cambridge Associates has clear data that says investing in emerging fund managers is a better IRR decision, but that's not who they recommend their LP capital go into because they're focusing on more sure things than pure alpha creation. But if you want alpha, like that's why you choose to do venture in the first place is because you're looking for alpha. You're not looking to diversify your alpha away necessarily. So is this something that you somehow integrate into your own conversation with LPs concerning what you're doing at Venture University? Yeah, I think for sure. Because part of the challenge of, I call it the number one challenge for the venture asset class is the quantity problem, which is there's so much deal flow out there. There's 200,000 companies that are raising how do you get into the best deals in any given quarter? And it's not something that you can use an AI black box magic to find. It's human intensive. We have 70 people on our team. That's more than the investment team members that are at Sequoia or NEA that are focusing on seed through Series B. Most of them, if they have a 20 to 50 person fund, they're doing more later stage deals. We have 70 people focusing on pre-seed through Series B. And so our ability to actually filter through all that deal flow and narrow it down to the best deals. Like every deal we do is co-investing with a top tier fund. Like 10%, 15% is probably with like Founders Fund or Teal Capital. Every deal we do is with a top tier fund. And so how do you get access to co-investing with those funds? If you as an LP can't get an allocation in Sequoia's fund, how do you still get access to the best deals? Well, you gotta find emerging fund managers that are able to secure these allocations in the top performing rounds as well. And so our model really helps hack the access piece of A, we've solved the scalability of how to vet such a large amount of deal flow, but we've also hacked the access piece, which is we have insiders at a growing amount of venture funds that are getting us access to the best deals that are happening on all these funds as well. So it's not just the visibility, it's also the inside access with the right relationships.
you said something before a while back that I thought was very interesting, which was you talked about how funds in the Midwestern parts of the U.S. have to have reserves to be able to follow on in their own rounds because it's going to be difficult to get other VCs to come with them. This speaks to the globalization problem because you don't have that in Silicon Valley. You don't have it in London. You don't have it in Berlin. Having gone through COVID, almost all of us, having seen the proliferation of a borderless VC industry for some time, at least. Where do you see this going to? Yeah, it's great. It's like, it's funny. Like even we just moved into our new San Francisco office over the weekend. So we chose to reopen a San Francisco office because we still think San Francisco is important, but we definitely have more people doing our program virtually. And I think that'll forever be the situation. We'll have a pretty strong number of people that are across the United States doing Venture University. Like we have people in LA, Texas, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, New York. So we have a virtual team outside of our physical offices and that makes us a stronger fund. I think Venture is certainly one of those industries where you can kind of do it from anywhere because you know pre-covid 80 of the meetings i would have at the office were on zoom or google hangouts like i would go to the office to do 80 of my meetings virtually so like how much sense does that make but there was a small number of meetings that you know people would come into the office if they were local or if they flew in to yeah. you know do the quick rounds at lots of vcs in one week you can do that here so like there is an advantage to having ecosystems where you can like sand hill road Like some people didn't even know that Sand Hill Road's like an actual road. Like you drive <laughs> down it and there's like 50 funds on one road. It's really easy. Like for people that don't know this, they're listening. Like Kleiner Perkins's office, Kleiner Perkins is literally across the street from Andreessen Horowitz. And the building that Andreessen Horowitz is in is part of the building that NEA is in. Like you literally see street like lights, traffic lights, and you cross the street and that's where between Kleiner Perkins, NEA and Andreessen, like that's the three of them. Down that road, the same road as you have like Graycroft and you know Greylock, you, you get all these funds. So it is an interesting experience where if you're a VC and you're grabbing lunch with a bunch of other VCs to talk about co-investing together, it's very incestuous when you're literally on the same street of each other or like our old office near the Transamerica building in the financial district, every building has like one to five VCs in every one of those buildings. And so it's just really easy to make relationships a lot faster and to co-invest or to raise capital. So it's not that you can't do that virtually. It's just, it's different if you're like at night and for lunches around everyone else that's in the industry. That's certainly helpful, but it certainly can be done virtually as well. And I think it's going to increasingly be done. So you know, we're looking at potentially opening up an office in Austin and getting a larger program there. You have a lot of VCs like Jim Breyer, you know, was one of the early guys at Excel. Breyer Capital's now in Austin. You have eight VC that just moved there. So you got a lot of top tier funds that are now moving to Austin and creating a new ecosystem there. But yeah, I think the globalization aspect of venture, I think that also goes to like, the value of really what VU is doing is that we're helping to create the future generations of global venture funds. It's not just people that are in Silicon Valley. And if you can't afford or get yourself to live here, you at least have a way of now creating a career by learning from people in Silicon Valley, but then launching your own venture fund in Estonia or in pick Germany, pick where you want to do it. It's so much easier to access the skills virtually to kind of grow out your own ecosystem in whatever part of the world you're in. We have to get to the quick fire round, but I, <laughs> I have to ask one final question. And that is, do you see that the bromance happening at Sand Hill Road might lead to complacency that will keep 
Sandhill Road from getting into the next wave. You said bromance, right? Was the I, I heard that bromance. correctly, right? The, yeah. the bromance. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fascinating. Like venture, it has a long way to go for diversity, but it's also made a lot of progress. You know, a good portion of the people that are in venture capital went to Ivy League schools from like Harvard Business School, Stanford, MIT. You know, a lot of it is still white male that are doing it. And the value of network is diversity. Like if everyone on your team went to Harvard Business School, you know, it's not a very diverse network network of where you're sourcing deals from. So you might say, well, I'm going to diversify it by having people from Wharton Business School as well. Yeah, that, that's certainly one way of diversifying it. But <laughs> you also want to diversify it by having people with a lot of different backgrounds. So that's from, you know, having people that are operators, you know, previously founder operators by increasing the number of women and underrepresented minorities. Something that's somewhat controversial, but I think we're probably one of the few groups that have the stats on this is there seems to be a general interest in having more women and underrepresented minorities in venture, which I think everyone agrees is a good thing. I think the question is, when have we ever achieved success? And I don't think anybody wants to put a number on that because it's like there'll never be success. It's just like it always just needs to be more. But I'd say that there actually is some thresholds where I think we could claim some initial success. It's sad that it's controversial to probably say that you could actually say that we've achieved any success so far. But if I look at like the number of women that do venture university it's roughly about a 30 percent of every cohort now are women and the number of women that are in venture capital depending on uh, the stats that you're looking at is around 15 to 20 percent and so that means every cohort of vu is about twice to one and a half times the number of women and so we are a contributing factor to the number of women that are breaking into venture um, and i'd argue as a true needle mover because we're graduating about you know, almost 150 people a quarter and so that's actually a pretty meaningful amount of women that are breaking into the industry because of vu for any lps that are listening i definitely support you to go and back a bunch of underrepresented minority emerging fund managers and women that are emerging fund managers but if you really want to move the needle, like we're also, you know, we have a fund where, you know, if you backed VU's fund, we're moving the needle by hundreds of people, not just by backing a few individual emerging fund managers. PayPal is probably one of the few that's actually doing this at scale where they're backing like a second batch of 50 underrepresented minorities. So I give them a lot of credit to doing it at, at more high volume. If you look at how many applicants we get into Venture University that are women, it's about 25, 30% of the applicants. So once we hit 25, 30% of women in venture, it kind of matches the number of percentage of women that are applying to the asset class. And like, unless you're going to put a gun to a woman's head and say, do venture capital or private equity, you've kind of at least hit a balance of how many people are applying versus how many people are in the industry. So from that regard, if we think that there's 15 to 20% in the industry, I think we can still make improvements of getting it up to 25, 30%. But you got to ask, like, at what percent do you say, okay, we've, we've achieved actual success of milestones but i think in most people's mind it's just more is better and i don't think there's actually like a milestone of when you could actually claim success and i think that's unfortunate because i don't think just more is better is actually a really good answer i think that could actually become quite toxic if you kept you know going along those lines and when it comes to like black and hispanic we have about 25% of our cohorts are black and Hispanic. And if you compare that to the number of applicants that we're getting is pretty much close to 25%. And from a population in the United States, the black population is about 13% and Hispanic is kind of roughly that. So together, almost like a 26%. So we are hitting averages right now between the number of applicants based on population and the number of people that are doing our program. If you compare that to how many people are in the industry, black and Hispanic represent about 1% 
end. And I think that's where the biggest diversity gap really is. I think women can certainly be improved, but you're not going to get as much of a bigger gap compared to 1% of the industry versus we're getting 20% of our applicants. I think that's where you can make a lot more progress, but nobody wants to hear that there's a much smaller gap to close for women. And that if you added another 10% that we've achieved success, nobody wants to hear that. But mathematically, that seems to be true. And again, I think we're probably one of the biggest needle movers to create that success than just complaining about it. We're running out of time, unfortunately. So we always finish with the quick fire round. Quick fire round is quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Sweet. I'll, I'll try. Try my best. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be able to. First question, what do you strongly believe in that most people around you would disagree with? Oh, that's a good one. And you've shared some controversial thoughts. <laughs> uh, the, the contrarian one. I guess, well, yeah, probably as a VC, the one that I'm more contrarian on than most VCs on that is that market matters more than team. Most VCs, and especially MBA graduates, would say that team is the number one thing that matters. It makes sense that they're so egotistical that they think they're the most important thing because they're <laughs> investing in themselves as ladder climbers. But I'd argue that I'd rather have an A market and a B team than an A team and a B market. I think you could have the best team in the world, but if you're not going after a big enough market opportunity, you'll never get an exit that's a really, really meaningful exit. So I'd be really careful in having the best team to execute if they're not going after a big market opportunity. And that's why I would always put market above team. But I think the most common answer is probably team is above market. They're both super important. Like you'd want to have a team and a market. But I've asked that question to a lot of fireside chats and team seems to be the most common answer, especially amongst people that have MBAs. I think my wisdom playing a bigger impact, I'd say that the size of the market opportunity matters more than team. What is common advice you hear VCs giving to founders that you strongly disagree with? Before becoming a VC, get operator experience. You know, if you want to become a VC in the future, like continue to get more operating experience. People like to point to Mark and Ben from Andreessen Horowitz. They're operators, they're successful. And the reality is for every Mark and Ben, there's a Fred Wilson who has zero operating experience and has just been an amazing VC. I think the reality is that if you're a founder, you might just be really good at starting companies and you might even be overly interested in replacing the CEOs that you invest in because you're going to keep thinking, I could do it better. I've started companies, I've scaled companies. I know that you're sucking, not because this is a bad opportunity, it's because you suck and you suck at executing. And so if you're a prior operator VC, you probably might have a shorter fuse and more likely to replace founders. And also you might just be really good at one particular business model and industry vertical versus a career VC has seen a lot broader spectrum of markets and business models and can you know outperform by having that type of diversity than only being really good at like enterprise SaaS deals. Yeah. I think that is probably a really common feedback of VCs is like, how do I become a VC? It's like, get some operating experience. Fred Wilson actually has a good blog on this where he's conflicted because his go-to answer is always get operating experience but then if he talk if he thinks about all the top VCs that he knows don't have any operating experience my argument is that's also why venture university exists is this is an apprenticeship and learn the skill that you actually need to know how to do which is how to evaluate companies and source companies you don't really know how to need how to start a company yourself like yeah you can say i've been there i've done that but they're not as correlated as you think so i think that's probably a one that a vc telling a founder that if you do want to become a vc in the future just keep getting yeah. more awesome operating experience i don't necessarily think that's 100 percent right so yeah. yeah final question we strongly believe that genius is global and we kind of hate that opportunity isn't all the time how can VCs help? Yeah, I'd say that's another way of saying ideas are a dime a dozen and execution is everything. You know, realize that 
most people suck. And so I think if you just internalize that first and realize that most people are not going to work very hard, most people will try to screw other people, which will ultimately destroy their own company, which is why most companies die by suicide than homicide. So you should be more focused on your own execution than focusing on the competition that exists because it'll always be competition. And you know, as VCs, we love investing in highly competitive markets because it's the same reason you rob a bank. You rob a bank because that's where the money is. You go after a highly competitive market because that's where all the money is. That's why there's a lot of competitors there. I think the key thing is we need to figure out how to focus on developing people that are just going to be better executors than necessarily idea generators. You need both, but People that can actually effectively execute are extremely rare. You know, I've been surrounded by a lot of people. I'm, I'm still like in my my mid 30s, so I'm kind of at that weird age where I have a lot of people that are younger than me, but I also have a lot of people that are older than me. I think it's true for all three of us. You know, there's definitely a difference between wisdom and intelligence, and I've been around a lot of older people that have been successful and not so successful, and they definitely have wisdom, but they don't have intelligence. And that's where that I think for the younger generations that are moving up, there's a lot of room for improvement improvement on creating better VCs and better founders in our ability of how we execute the things that we do. Skylar, thank you so much. It's been a super big pleasure for our followers. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. No, thank you guys for having me. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.